Well, welcome to the well. My name is Tori. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it is good to be with you all this morning. Uh, lots of things to rejoice at this week. Um, several of y'all came out and helped at Campbell Elementary for their science fair and actually had our most volunteers we've ever had. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, it's really a blessing in the way that you guys uh, just serve this school and kind of bless this body. So thank you. Thank you. It's a huge blessing for us at the well and obviously a blessing for uh, those involved too. So I usually have a picture of my family favorite science project, but I had to run out afterwards, so just ask some people who volunteered. There were some hilarious ones, all right? So thank you. I know many more of you would have served if you could have. It was in the middle of a work day, so uh, just thankful for you guys. Bless our community there. Uh, We had one of our largest covenant community classes this morning, uh, and so that's exciting. More people joining our family, which is great. We got new offices this week for our staff. That's like a huge deal, okay? Uh, And so that's pretty cool. And then after all that excitement, we get to spend the next three weeks talking about death, sin, Satan, and the fall. (laughs) Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo! All right. Uh, Let's dive in. We're in Genesis. We are in chapter three, so that is where we will be capping out. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Uh, Genesis 3. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some under every second and third chair somewhere around you. Uh, If you physically don't own a Bible, we want you to take and keep that. That's our gift to you. Uh, We want you to have the Word to be able to read it during the week. So please do that. Take that one home. Uh, You can also follow along on your smartphone if you wish. If you have the YouVersion app underneath the tab section, click on Events. Type in the Well Austin. You can follow along that way. Uh, You can also take this link and put it right into your browser, uh, and you can follow along that way too. We say this every single week because we genuinely mean it. We want your eyes on the word. So whether that's on your phone or in the scriptures or whatever you need to do, uh, we want you to see that I'm not up here just trying to make some stuff up or, or sound cute or cool or something like that. Like we believe that this is the word of God to us and that God wants to communicate who he is and he wants us to understand him in beautiful and in profound ways through this text. And so we want to be looking at that as a community. Amen. Good deal. Okay. So Genesis chapter three, uh, that's where we'll be. So all of us know to kind of give us a little bit of background, um, that there's something wrong with us, right? Like we feel it inside of our own hearts. We know that there's something that's just not the way that it is supposed to be. We see it in the world around us that there are things that are corrupt. There are things that are painful. There are, whether it be disasters and creation kind of unraveling, clearly not the way that God has it, or whether it be in our uh, 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 environments, our community, and our relationships, and uh, the nations, and leadership, and business and government and wherever we look at, we tend to see that, man, there's something that's just not spot on. In fact, we feel the angst of it and we desire to see change. All of us know that there's something wrong in this world, okay? And according to scripture, this is where it all started. This is where it originated. In fact, I'm convinced that everything that is wrong with the world can actually be found here in Genesis 3 because all of evil and sin and all of the things that sin does to us and and through us and the way that it impacts us. I mean, this is talked about here literally in this chapter. And so that's what we're going to look at for the next couple of weeks. All right. So we're going to camp out in Genesis three because the fall is the reality that we live in a lot of times. So we'll be here for a few weeks just to give us a little bit of pace so that we're all on the same page. All right. Uh, When we talk about the fall, we say that in the scriptures, God gave Adam and Eve one command. That's it. 
Just one really simple command. It was to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as we'll read in a couple of minutes, they went and did that, okay? So they ate, and what uh, people call that moment is the fall. We say that's where we fell from relationship with God. That's where things started falling apart. This is the fall. Over the last several weeks, we've looked at, or a couple of weeks, actually, we've looked at the unity, the beauty, the perfection, literally the perfect detail in which God went into all of his creation. And then here in Genesis 3, all of it began to unravel. All of it began to become undone because of the fall. So many different things got fractured or divided at the fall. When you hear the word reconciliation in the New Testament, that word means to bring back. And what that means is we're trying to be brought back into what God has originally attended in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. At the fall, there were five particular divisions or five uh, uh, areas that were uh, divided, that we got separated, that got fractured when man sinned against God. And they'll all be on the screen for you. The first one is that man got separated from God. We were designed to be in an intimate, connected, deep relationship with him. And when we severed that relationship, when we said, no, we're going to choose our own way, then we lost the ability to have the intimacy that was designed for upon creation. So at Genesis chapter 3, man was divided or fractured or separated from God. Man also was separated from himself, and you'll see that in this text too. Instead of having uh, enrichment, instead of knowing what he was created for, instead of feeling the imago day in him now, he feels shame, he feels guilt, he feels all of the emotions that come out of the fall, this anxiousness or depression or worry or, or trouble or anger, all these things extend from what happened here in Genesis 3. So man was divided from himself. Man was also divided, thirdly, from other men or from humanity, if you will. So now we see Adam and Eve were meant to be deeply connected, but instead there's this blaming. They begin to war with each other. Man now is at war with other men. At the fall, there was a separation between what God had intended humanity to be. Fourth is with creation. We see now that when you walk up to a squirrel, it doesn't run up to you, it runs away from you, right? Well, what happens? There was supposed to be dominion, care, rulership over the earth. And in the uh, uh, new kingdom, we see that uh, we will have that ability to have peace again. But right now there's war, not just with the creation of the world, but also with God's creation in sin, uh, or I'm sorry, in Satan, and that he once was an angel, but now has fallen, and now he is at war with us and we with him. And that's what we'll be talking about today. So there was a division from God's creation. And then the fifth fracture was creation from creation. So the lion one day will dwell with the lamb, right? And there will be this peace. But right now there's not. There's war. Even in creation, creation literally divides or wars against itself, which is why we have disasters, And so at the fall, all these things began to get separated, okay? So everything got messed up. This week, we're going to focus on the fourth fracture, man from creation, mainly looking at how man and the enemy, Satan, are now at war with each other as Satan wars against the kingdom of God. He distorts, he messes up, he tries to shift our perspective on the goodness of who God is and gets us to try to see God in ways that are not the way that God had intended for us to see him. Next week, we'll look at uh, between us and God, so that second fracture there, and the third week we'll look at, or the first fracture, sorry, the third week we'll look at us and other humans, okay? Does that make sense? You're tracking with us there? 
Wanted to give us pace, okay? We're not gonna tackle number five and number two. One of them because we're gonna talk about in our community group. So if you're in a group, you'll hit that. The other one is because it's all throughout Genesis. So we'll hit it over and over and over again. It'll be obvious, okay? We have a great enemy whose name is Satan, who is at war with God and with the things that God has made his creation, mainly us, humanity, God's crown of creation. Satan is at war against us. He uses our own corrupt and twisted flesh to get us to not see God in the way that uh, God intended to be seen and to sin against God, to rebel against him and to act out ways that God would not intend for us, okay? I understand very, very clearly that in Western society, we have a very hard time understanding evil, right? In a lot of ways, most of us think that if we can't see it, then it must not exist. And we would never say that publicly, even as believers, we know that evil, that Satan exists, but a lot of times we interact in our lives as if we don't have a great enemy, listen, who hates you. He hates you and he hates your family, and he hates everything that you do, and it is his sole mission to ruin all of your life. We don't have a good time understanding that because if we can't see it, then it must not exist in a lot of ways. But evil is real. There are forces that scripture say that are at war against us, and Satan would do everything in his power for the believer to get you to lose your joy and to get you to lose your communion with God, the fellowship with God that is now being reconciled at Christ Jesus. Satan would try to distort that and ruin that in your life. And for the non-Christian, for the person that's wrestling with the faith, he will do everything that he can to get you to not believe in Christ and who he is. This is a foolish message. This is a silly message. This is, this is lunacy a lot of times is what Satan would say. He will do everything that he can to try to sever our main relationship, which is that with the Lord. His greatest tactic in America, I think, or in Western society in general, is to get us to believe that he doesn't exist, to get us to believe that he's not real, to get us to believe that he's not really that present, okay? And I don't have time for a ton of stories, but I literally used to think that myself. In fact, there was one time in particular, I was a freshman in college, I was in my dorm room, I remember this very distinctly, because I said to my friend, I know Satan is real, like I I know he exists, But I just don't think he exists in the way that some people act like he does. Because I grew up in a black church with a black granny. And if you have black grannies, then you know that Satan is behind everything, right? So we got a flat tire, that was Satan, right? That food tasted bad, that was Satan, okay? And so I grew up around that and I thought, man, like the enemy's not at war like that. And I agree, if the food's bad, it's probably not Satan, right? But I just thought, ah, like he doesn't really exist as much as I think he does. And I think... God in his grace over the next six weeks literally exposed me to so much spiritual warfare that I won't even share right now on stage. I can tell you personal stories if you want, where I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that Satan is real, that the kingdom of hell is real, and that he would do anything that he can to get you to not believe in this, even make this very statement sound foolish to you. Satan tries to convince us that he isn't existing, that he's not very present, that he's not active, but he is the main force against us, and he uses the evil of the world to try to distort our picture of God and try to keep us out of fellowship with him 
and with who he is, Satan is very, very real. So I know, if you're not a believer, I know this, this might sound kind of like sci-fi-y almost right now, right? Maybe even you are a believer but haven't wrestled with this. Man, all throughout the scriptures, it couldn't be more plain. And I would encourage you to stick with us even throughout the end of the sermon today because I think some of the things in our world will make sense as we understand evil more. Jesus was serious about praying about against spiritual warfare. Literally in the Lord's Prayer, he says, and deliver us from the evil one or from evil, from the war that's around us in general. All throughout the epistles, we see that. And I'm going to stick in Genesis today because if you're doing the uh, Bible devotional that the well put together, all this week, that's what we're talking about, spiritual warfare. So there's a ton of other scriptures that you'll see. And so I'll just leave that for you to look at and wrestle with this week. But here's where it all started, Genesis chapter 3, okay? So let's do this. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. <clears throat> It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will, surely not, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, we'll stop right there. Firstly, so that we're on the same page, the serpent is a representation of Satan, okay? So we don't know if Satan literally actually came in the form of a serpent or took over a snake and was talking or what was going on there, but this is supposed to represent Satan, evil, uh, just the, the negative anti-God in general, okay? We know somewhere between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 3, Satan rebelled against God and fell from heaven, fell down into earth. And so we know that throughout other places in Scripture. So we believe that this is literally Satan coming in and now trying to make war against all the things that God loves because Satan hates God. He's trying to tear down God's creation. Now, Satan was crafty or tricky more than anything else God had made that says there in verse 1. And the same thing is true today. The enemy is crafty, he's tricky, he's deceitful, and as we'll see in a second, he uses the same tactics that he used with Eve that against us on a daily, on a consistent basis. So notice a couple of things that he does here. First of all, he changes God's name. Now this may seem small, this may seem subtle, but all throughout chapter two, we see this phrase, Lord God, L-O-R-D, all caps. It says it multiple times and it's the only name that is used of God. Lord God, Lord God. What that translates into in the Hebrew is Yahweh Elohim. And Yahweh was the covenant name of God. It was the name by which you called God if you had a relationship with him. And God, or Satan drops God's covenant name, his relational name, and uses just a a much more impersonal name of God, just this distant God that's out there. So this may seem small, but remember, he's crafty. He knows that he has to go through this slyly and subtly, and he does it in all these little ways, even by changing God's name. In other words, what he's telling Eve is that God's not a personal God. You don't really have this relationship with him. You don't know him. In fact, he's withholding from you. So you don't fully know who God is. He's not a relational being. He's just this God up there in the earth that created you. And so even within this subtle effect of changing God's name, we see that Eve actually goes off and uses that same name. 
She drops the relational name of God and just calls him God. The reason that we know that this isn't like some shift in writing is because in verse 8, it starts using Lord God again. So literally when God comes back down, he starts referring to himself as Yahweh Elohim almost as a way to say, even though things got fractured, I still desire a relationship with you. I still will come and try to make a way to have us in covenant, in relationship with one another. But here... He's just this distant God, just the God that created everything, and that's kind of it. And so what seems small will actually build up into a big thing in the end. God goes from personable and knowable to distant and just kind of the creator of all. Also notice how Satan uses the phrase actually there. Did God actually say? What a mean God, right? What? What a cruel God. Did God actually say that you couldn't eat anything? That you couldn't do anything? And he says, no, he didn't actually say that. It's just this one that we shouldn't eat and shouldn't touch. So Satan avoids reference to God's gracious and generous permission of literally the entire garden. And he focuses on the one prohibition that God put down before Adam and Eve. He neglects to talk about God's benevolence, that they had the whole garden that they could choose from. All of what God had created was at their disposal, but he focuses on the one thing that God said that they should not do, which was eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And so what Satan does is his first main lie, which I think is the same lie that he gives to us, is that God is not good, okay? God's not good. That's what he started trying to get Eve to think. And that's on the PowerPoint, by the way, I think, if, if you're following along. That's for Satan's first main lie is that God is not good. Like, don't you, don't you see this? Doesn't he do the same exact thing to you? Doesn't he trick you and try to deceive you in the exact same ways? He gets you to focus on the one thing that you can't have or that you don't have, and he makes you forget about all of the things that God has given you up to this point in your life. Like, forget the fact that we have a God who loves us so much that he came down as a man, died on the cross for our sins, and took on the wrath of God for us. Forget the fact that he's given us the Holy Spirit. Forget the fact that he's given us a church family or a family that loves us. Forget the fact that we have health generally, or we have relationships, we have friendships, or maybe we have marriage, maybe we have children, maybe we have a job, maybe we have a car, it might barely work, but we can still drive right? Like, like maybe we have taste buds or, or sight or, or hearing or feeling. There's flowers and trees. Forget about all the good things that God has given us. You're still single though. God must not be that good. You still have poor health. God must not be that good. You still have emotional health issues. If God cared, wouldn't, wouldn't he help you there? And this is the same thing he does to us gets us to shift our eyes off of God's unrealistic, unbelievable benevolence and gets us to focus on the one or two things that God hasn't given to us. Satan is crafty, he's tricky, but he makes us think that God isn't good. And that's a lie because God is overwhelmingly good. He shifts our eyes off of God's gracious gifts, right? Satan does that same thing to us and then mocks us when we go chase what he tells us we can or can't have to receive it only for it to crumble beneath us. He then just mocks us, right? So one of the things that I would say as a way to uh, 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 combat Satan, to combat his lies is to be thankful. 
That's one way that we can uh, combat the lies of the enemy is to show forth gratitude. All throughout scripture, there's this command of faithfulness over and over and over and over again. It commands us, be thankful, be thankful, because what it does is it reminds us, oh, wait a minute, this is a lie. God has given me so many good things. And yeah, for sure, there may be one or two things that I want. But listen, friends, God withholds no good thing from the believer, scripture says. He withholds nothing good from you. So if you don't have it, it must not be good for you. I mean, I'd like a mill right now, right? A million dollars, that's what that means for, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, I'd like that, right? Okay, but he hasn't given it to me, and so apparently it must not be good. Apparently I will begin to worship money, or I will lose my affections for the church, or something, I don't know what will happen, but he does not give because he withholds because he's good. He was withholding from Adam and Eve here because he's good. He knew that if they chose autonomy, if they chose to be their own gods, that it would unravel the nation. He said, do not eat from this. They chose to be their own gods. So when we're thankful, it reminds us that, wait a minute, no, God is good. He has given us good things. He does not withhold from us. Bruce Walkie, a uh, uh, pastor, I'm sorry, a professor at RTS says this. Once Satan can get our eyes on what we cannot do, we are sure to do it. The focus on the Christian should be on all of the good that God offers, not the few restrictions that have goodness of which we may be unaware. We were just Satan saying. Now the crazy thing is that Satan, his lies are usually so deceitful that they're hard to actually discern whether or not they're even true. Even here in Eve, with Eve, he's lying in such a way where it's kind of hard to say, like, is this true or is it not true? Right? Like, like he doesn't tell Eve, hey, you know what? If you eat of this, you'll sprout wings like eagles and you'll be able to dwell on other planets. That was absurd. I don't know where that came from. Okay. <laughs> he doesn't do that, right? Why? Because that's absurd. She's literally going to be like, what? Get out of here. What is, why is this snake talking to me? Right? It's going to be confusing, okay? No. What he does is he lies to us in these very subtle ways. So with you, he doesn't just say, hey, go shoot that person in the face and all your problems will be gone, right? We're not going to do that. We're going to that's absurd. Why would that happen? What he says is, you know how hard you've worked and he's disrespecting you like this? Aren't you worthy of blank, don't you? And slowly but surely, he subtly crafts a way for us to begin to believe in the lies of the enemy. Satan is crafty, he's tricky, he's deceitful. He tries to distort what is actually true in our lives. The woman then in verse 3 begins to confuse God, so she misquotes him here. And so God didn't say you couldn't touch. She begins to kind of create her own rules, if you will, which is the same thing we do. God says that, hey, we should, I don't know, uh, observe the Sabbath, let's say. And then in the Old Testament, I said, well, what that means is these 917 other things that are attached to the Sabbath that God didn't actually say, but we make up our own man-made rules. Then we break our man-made rules. Then we feel guilty for breaking a rule that God never even told us to follow in the first place. And then we feel shame, and he gets us into this downward spiral, and we end up being deceived. Satan does the same thing here, confuses the woman. She starts adding on to God's prohibition. She starts twisting things, calling him the wrong name. And rather than just fleeing from Satan, she ends up entering into that temptation, which that same thing is true for us with sin. We entertain temptation, then we will fall victim to temptation. The second way we can overcome sin is to flee from temptation. Why? 
because Satan is tricky and you are not. Okay, right? If somebody came with a gun to a fight and you had a rolled up piece of paper, run. Okay? I don't care if you're Jack Bauer, you're not winning that fight, right? Like, there is a disadvantage here. Well, that same thing is true between us and the enemy. He is tricky. He is deceitful. And so when temptation comes, we should flee it. Eve should have saw that snake and been like, this is awkward. I'm gone. Right? But she starts communicating. She starts trying to understand, figure out, and slowly but surely, he tricks her into falling. Satan then, in verse 5, tells Eve the second great lie. And it's that you can be God where you are God. That's the second great lie. There are only two lies that Satan gives. That God is not good and that you are God. Right? Why is God withholding from you, Eve? You know what? Because if you do this, you'll actually be like him. You'll be God. So the serpent creates doubt in God's word. He creates doubt in God's promise. And he creates doubt in God's goodness. He does the same thing with us today. He's withholding from you. He's not good. He's not giving you what would make you happy. He's not blessing you with what you deserve. In other words, God is not good. Or, that's the first lie. The second one is, you are worthy of worship. People should respect you. Do you know who you are? Right? Man, Tori, after the sermon today, at least 14 people should come and go, man, that was a great sermon. And out loud, you should go, oh, thanks, but in your heart, you should say, I know. You are God, is what he tries to lie to us about. Right? It's the same thing with you. Or, you don't need God. You've got this on your own. This whole Christian thing, submit to God, confess your sins, lay down your life. Like, you don't need that. You're good by yourself. You don't need God. You are God. These are the two lies that he gets us to believe. The same problem is that he just masked it in 5,000 different ways. But he colors with the same crayon print. He's not very artistic. The same exact lies over and over and over again. Victor Hamilton says this, Whenever one makes his own will crucial and God's revealed will irrelevant, whenever autonomy displaces submission and obedience in a person, that finite individual attempts to rise above the limitations imposed on him by his creator. You try to be God, and you're not. Let's finish out our section for today. We'll pick it back up in verse 6. So here are the two lies. Satan deceives, he's crafty, he's tricky. Then what happens? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, okay, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave... <laughs> I just love this. We'll talk about that more in a couple of weeks. We won't even do it today, but man. But the woman, okay, uh, who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. 
Then God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between uh, your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now we'll get more into God and man next week, and then we'll get more into man and man the following week. That's why we're not going to look at some of those. But what we see this week in our focus on the enemy is that he was clearly lying. Right? I mean, it's easy for us, hindsight 2020, right, to look on this side of it. But that was a tricky moment, and she ate of it, and now all of a sudden, she does know good and evil. So it's this half-truth, but it's not a good truth for her because they feel shame, they feel fear, they run, they hide. So Satan kind of took this thing that was clearly bad, masked it in some half-truth, and then deceived the woman and the man, and they believed. We'll look at it in a more breakdown format next week, but Adam and Eve did not get what they hoped for. They were left shameful, hurting, broken, empty, all of the adjectives that we tend to feel in our hearts if we're honest with ourselves or something wrong. They felt it at that moment that they decided to be their own God. He is a liar. He hates you. You want nothing more than to unravel your life in God's creation. Every time we listen to him, in fact, our eyes are open, but not in a good way. And God opens our eyes, too. They're in beautiful ways. Satan also opens our eyes. They're in destructive ways. So point number three that we can uh, combat or, or the ways that we can not fall victim to the enemy's lies is to understand his lies in the first place. This is part of why scripture lays out this story for us so that we can see what Satan is up to. Satan gets them to realize their shame and they end up worse because of it. C.S. Lewis wrote this book called uh, Paralandra. And I love the book. Okay, it's a part of his space trilogy. And uh, most people haven't read the space trilogy, but so far they've been great. I'm on book number three right now. And book number two, he writes this story about uh, this man named Ransom that travels up to Venus. Okay, this is written in 1940-something, so you got to forgive him a little bit, right? But he travels up to Venus, and he realizes that God has actually recreated the Garden of Eden on Venus. And there's a king and there's a queen, and God has given them one command. And so Ransom goes up there, and he's experiencing all of this bliss and this beauty, and everything is profound, and everything tastes great, and there's no pain, and he's changing into a new man, and blah, blah, blah. And then the enemy comes. And the enemy is also dressed like a man, and he's trying to deceive this woman. And slowly but surely, he's working her into believing that the one command that God gave, which was to not sleep on this one particular piece of land in that book, that that was because God wanted her to actually rebel on purpose. Because in rebelling, she would show that she was autonomous, and she would show that she was like God, because God created her in her image and likeness, and he wants you to be like him, so go rebel. And Ransom's trying to think, man, what am I supposed to do? Right? And he says this, so the enemy was using third-degree methods. It seemed to Ransom that, but for a miracle, the lady's resistance was bound to be worn away in the end. Why did no miracle come? Or rather, why no miracle on the right side? For the presence of the enemy was in itself a kind of miracle. Had hell had a prerogative to work wonders? Why did heaven work none? Not for the first time he found himself questioning divine justice. 
He could not understand why God should remain absent when the enemy was there in person. But while he was thinking this, as suddenly and sharply as if the solid darkness about him had spoken with articulate voice, he knew that God was not absent. That sense, so very welcome yet never welcomed without the overcoming of a certain resistance, that sense of the presence which he had once or twice before experienced in Paralandra returned to him. Moreover, he became aware in some indefinable fashion that it had never been absent, that only some unconscious activity of his own had succeeded in ignoring it for the past few days. I love this thought. Why? Because in our temptation, in our struggle, we often think, God, where are you at? And God, where are you at? I've asked you to heal me of this before, God. Where are you at? Why are you not freeing me from this? Why are you not helping me in this? I feel all of this temptation and the enemy is pressing upon me. God, where are you at? How come I can't overcome this sin? Where is my relief? Where is my relief, we ask ourselves. It's not God that's absent from us. It's us that's not listening, tapping into, experiencing the presence of God. God has never been absent. God has never been absent. How do we know this even here in this story, in Genesis 3? Well, they sin, they sew together fig leaves, and then God walks over directly to where they're hiding and says, Adam, where are you? <laughs> now, whenever God is asking a question like that, hint, he's not asking you a question, okay? And even Adam actually knew this, right? Because God says, where are you? And Adam responds, why he's hiding. So he knew that God knew where he was. Why? Because he knew that God was with him, right? He knew that God was present, that he knew what was going on. He's omniscient. God didn't disappear for a moment. He neglected to listen to the word of God. He knew that right away. God was present there with him, but they decided to listen to the voice of evil rather than the voice of God. Point four, how do we overcome temptation when we listen to God's voice or his word? This is part of the reason why knowing scripture is so important, because it's a way in which we can combat the enemy. Now, God was not going to robot them into some obedience. You know what I mean by that? Like, he wasn't going to force them to believe they had to choose whether they want allegiance with God or allegiance with Satan and themselves. In a lot of ways, God almost robot forced them into obedience because he gave them all good things. There was one thing that he asked them not to do to choose obedience, allegiance to him, and they broke that saying, no, we're going to go our own way. And so God also offers us the way of escape. But just like many of us today, the enemy deceives us. We start feeling like, God, where are you at? As if he had not provided the way of escape maybe decades ago for some of us. Few weeks ago, his word it informed us. Maybe the Holy Spirit spoke directly to us. We didn't listen, and we say, God, where are you at? It's not God that's absent, friends. God loves you. He's intimate. He's not going to leave you. We just sang that. Height nor depth nor anything else will separate us from the love of God. He is with us. And so as we understand how to listen to his word, how to listen to his voice, we remember that he is stronger than the enemy and he is present with us. God is there with us. God has spoken to the scriptures. When we shift our eyes to look at what seems good, what seems like it would taste good, like Eve did in verse 6, when we look away from God and look to our problems, we end up stumbling into temptation. Victor Hamilton once again says this, Alas, rather than experiencing bliss, they encounter misery. 
rather than sitting on a throne they are expelled from the garden. Rather than new prerogatives, they experience only the reversal. The couple not only fail to gain something they do not presently have, the irony is that they lose what they currently possess. Unsolid fellowship with God, they found nothing and lost everything. And that's exactly what Satan will desire to do in your life. To have you find nothing and to lose everything. He hates you and he hates God's creation. And he is at war with us. And so we give up gold to get dirt. We try to gain and gain, and we only gain manure, but somehow Satan makes us think that we're gaining with flowers. It's just not true, friends. It's not true. So, what do we do? Okay, well, we already mentioned. We have four things, right? Flee from temptation, give thanks, all right? understand the enemy, understand his lies, and then trust the word of God. That's what we do, okay? But, like, like don't you try to do this already? <laughs> Like, like, you kind of know some of that naturally, right? Like, like, even if you are not a Christian, even if you are just trying to be a good person, I mean, you try to flee temptation sometimes. You know that the anger that dwells inside of your heart, you hate that anger, and you say, I'm not going to be angry today, I'm not going to be angry today. And then you hop on 35, somebody cuts you off, and you cuss them on your head, right? Like, you can't help it, right? Or you say, I'm not going to look at this website no more, I'm not going to look at this website no more, and then you go and you fall into it. You know you should flee temptation. You know you should trust in God's word. We know those things already, but we still fall into this. So where's our hope at? Because if we left today saying, now you go do likewise, guess what, friends? We are Adam and Eve. That's what this story reveals to us. We are Adam and Eve. We will choose allegiance to ourselves because we don't think that God is good. At least not all the time. And we do kind of think that we can be our own gods. We end up falling into this. If we just try to apply these tactics without missing the thrust of the story, then we completely fail in understanding this. Genesis 3.15 gives us our true hope. Theologians call this verse the proto-evangelion, or the first evangelistic message is what that word means. And it promises that there's hope. Now, we're going to break down this verse more next week and look at the intricacies of this word. But friends, do you know that you have a greater Adam than Jesus? Jesus is the greater Adam in far more ways than we can express this morning. But think about even what we've been talking about this morning. Adam and Eve had everything given to them. They had the garden, the, literally the whole creation before them. God was with them, walking amongst them. They felt no shame, no guilt, no sin, and they had just one command to follow. Just one, that's it, which was to choose allegiance to God. Instead, they chose to be allegiant to themselves and to the enemy, and they fell into all of this. But Genesis 3.15 says that there's a greater hope. There's a Messiah that will come that will crush the head of that pathetic liar, Satan. I hate Satan, sorry. Pathetic. And the enemy, will, or the enemy will get crushed as Jesus comes. See, like Jesus, he was faced with temptation, just like Adam was, like Adam, sorry. Jesus was faced with temptation. In Genesis chapter 4, they go into, sorry, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness, and he starts to be tempted by the enemy, by the serpent, by Satan. And what's the first thing that he tells them? Jesus is fasting for 40 days, and he says, hey, eat of this bread. Turn these rocks into bread and eat. Just like he told Eve, hey, eat. He's telling Jesus, hey, eat. And Jesus says, man will not live by bread alone. What's he doing? He's fleeing Satan. 
He's resisting temptation. He knows the enemy's lies, and he's quoting scripture. The four tactics that we said how we can overcome the enemy, Jesus employs them right there. Hey, eat. And he says, no. And then he shows them the temple, and he says, hey, jump off the temple and let God's angels catch you. Remember in scripture it said that the angels of God will catch you. Your foot won't strike a stone. Hey, hey, show that God is good. Show that God actually cares for you, that he actually loves you. Prove that God is good. She said, I don't have to prove that God is good. And he quoted scripture again. So Satan tries to get him to doubt God's goodness. Jesus knows that God is good. Then he brings him up and says, hey, bow down and worship me. And all the kingdoms will be yours. What is he saying? You will be God. Now, the ironic thing is that sounds like the weakest temptation, like bow down to Satan. Right? But what is Satan saying? You can have all the kingdoms of the world without suffering the death. You can have the whole creation before you. You can be God and never have to drink the wrath of God, Satan says. And the New Testament says that the kingdom of this world is Satan, so to some extent it was his to give. But Jesus, once again, fled temptation, rebuked Satan, knew his lies, was able to speak scripture, and said, you shall not put the Lord God to your test away from me, Satan. Jesus overcame the temptation that Adam was not able to overcome. Jesus is our greater Adam, friends. And so when you and I are faced with that, all of us are Adam and Eve. All of us will fall victim to the temptation, if not for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus who overcame that for us. This is the gospel, that unbelieving and unbelieving in Jesus, we have the ability, friends, to overcome the evil one. When we are left to ourselves, we end up stumbling into temptation, but we have a greater Adam overcame all of Satan's tricks and lies. And this enemy, as Genesis 3.15 says, he did strike at the head of Jesus because Jesus had to die. But at resurrection, Jesus crushed the head of that sorry serpent. And one day, friends, he will crush the head of it. Even in your life, listen, even if you're a believer, you know, you feel that God is slowly but surely changing you, right? Because even upon believing in this second Adam, it's not like everything then gets perfect. No, we still live on this side of Genesis 3. But even right now, you feel the scales falling off of you, don't you? As you believe in Jesus, he slowly but surely works these things into your life. He brings you back into Genesis 2. He reconciles. Jesus is the greater Adam who overcame all evil. And one day he will overcome it in you. And one day he will overcome it in this world. Friends, we live in Genesis 3. We know that. We feel it. We know there's something wrong. Jesus is the remedy. We can operate now by the power and the blood of Jesus. We can flee Satan now. He has no more hold on us. His head has been crushed. And Satan is that sorry country, you know, like in war, when somebody's already won, but the enemy still has a couple of strongholds, and they're coming in, they're still trying to shoot everybody up. That's what Satan is. He knows he's lost, but he's still trying to take people down with him before he goes down. But one day Satan himself will get thrown into the utter pits of hell, not to rule it, to suffer eternally. For all of this chaos he's created in you, if you believe in Jesus, will be free, release. And guess what the first thing we have to do when we get to heaven is? We go and we eat of the tree of life. The one thing that Adam and Eve chose not to do, he will free you from your sin, you will eat of the tree of life, and then you will live forever in perfection. Friends, Jesus is the greater Adam. Even this week, as you feel Satan warring against you, your flesh warring against you, trust 
Christ, he won for you. He will help you overcome.